Immigration Advocates Network podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's podcast on the merits and drawbacks of immigration options for unaccompanied children. My name is Peter Bogdanich, and I'm an AmeriCorps VISTA working with the Immigration Advocates Network. In my role as Ian's Immigrant Youth Resources Coordinator, I'm the administrator for the Unaccompanied Children Resource Center, an online tool that provides free legal resources and information for immigrants and advocates. I also help build partnerships with organizations that work with immigrant children and develop trainings to assist the advocates representing them. Today's podcast will focus on examining two different immigration options for unaccompanied children, asylum and special immigrant juvenile status. Today, I'll be speaking with Claire Thomas, the Director of Trainings at the Safe Passage Project, an organization that works to address the unmet legal needs of indigent immigrant youth living in New York by providing them with basic advice and assisting them in finding pro bono counsel. Claire, thank you for joining us today. Could you describe the Safe Passage Project and the work you do there? Thank you so much, Peter. I'm delighted to be here. So my name is Claire Thomas, and the organization I work for, Safe Passage Project, is a nonprofit that's housed at New York Law School in Manhattan. And what we do is act as a pro bono clearinghouse for unaccompanied children who are in removal or deportation proceedings at the New York Immigration Court. So we go to a lot of the dockets for children at the New York court, we ask all the children if they have a lawyer, and if they don't have a lawyer, we ask them if they'd like to speak with us for free. We assist the kids to stand up as what's called a friend of the court before the immigration judge and ask her for a continuance or an adjournment of the child's uh, removal case so that we can then help the young person to find a pro bono attorney. So my job at Safe Passage is actually to develop and promote training materials to mentor our pro bono um, attorneys, so attorneys who volunteer their time for free to take on these kids' cases. I also teach at New York Law School as well. Great. So uh, before we get into the, uh, the questions, uh, how about to begin, could you uh, briefly define what an unaccompanied minor is in the context of immigration law? Sure. Yes, I think that's a great place to start. So when we're talking about unaccompanied minors, it's actually sort of a vast definition, and I'm going to break it down to different terms of art. So we have the term UAC, which according to our statute, um, the U.S. Code Section 279G2, that stands for unaccompanied alien child. The court, uh, the immigration court, has dropped the term alien for the most part. So these young people are referred to as UCs or UACs. And what that means is that the young person was under the age of 18 and had no lawful status in the United States at the time that they were apprehended, either by Customs and Border Protection or Immigration and Customs Enforcement, different immigration agencies. And at the time of that apprehension, they were neither with a parent nor a legal guardian. We also have in immigration law the definition of the term for child, right, juvenile and minor. And all of those are slightly different just to make everything confusing. Children are, are usually defined in relationship to their parents as derivatives on parents' applications. So a child in immigration law, um, just in the definition section of the Immigration and Nationality Act, is a person who is unmarried and under the age of 21. A juvenile can be defined as someone under 18 
And a minor is actually defined in the regulations following the um, Immigration Nationality Act as someone who appears to be under the age of 14. So all of that leads to a lot of confusion in our system. Definitely. Yeah. And uh, could you give a quick uh, overview of the two options that we'll be talking about today, asylum and special immigrant juvenile status, and address uh, what are these uh, benefits of each option? Sure. So asylum, asylum is an immigration benefit and a form of relief from uh, removal for a person who is unwilling or unable to return to her home country or her country of origin because she suffered from persecution or she fears persecution on account of her race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group, or political opinion. So to be eligible for asylum, a person must also show that his or her government of that country of origin is unwilling or unable to protect her and that she cannot safely relocate to a third country. Um, she also needs to not be statutorily barred from asylum. There's certain um, um, things, elements that would prohibit someone from being granted asylum and that she merits a grant of asylum in the adjudicator's discretion. So in general, that's asylum. The other form of immigration relief we're going to be talking about today is special immigrant juvenile status, or SIG. And what that is, it's actually a bifurcated form of protection for some children who are under the age of 21, who are unmarried, and who are found to be dependent on a juvenile court in that reunification with that child with one or both of the child's parents is not viable due to abuse, abandonment, neglect, or other similar basis under state law, and that it's not in the child's best interest to go back to her country of origin or her country of last habitual residence. So special immigrant juvenile status actually does involve the state court. We call it a juvenile court, but that is a state court um, as well as immigration law. It's unique in that aspect. So in terms of both of these options lead to lawful permanent residence or a green card and put the young person on a path to citizenship. For asylum after one year um, of being an asylee or someone being granted asylum, you can apply for lawful permanent residence. And for special immigrant juvenile status, you can also apply for lawful permanent residence. The timing for that um, has gotten a little bit fuzzy lately in terms of a backlog that I think we're going to touch on a little bit later. But in general, those are the immigration benefits for both of those options. In your opinion, uh, why do some attorneys who are representing unaccompanied children rush uh, to pursue special immigrant juvenile status rather than asylum claims? In my opinion, I think a lot of times the attorneys rush because the young person who, um, who is eligible for special immigrant juvenile status is by definition a young person who is not living with one or both of their biological parents. And at times that young person really does depend on the family court or a juvenile court order in order for permanency and stability here in the United States. So for example, um, even back in 2004 when they were, I'm sorry, 2014, when there were increasing numbers of children from Central America coming to the United States, we had issues as advocates in terms of making sure that children were enrolled in school, helping children obtain health insurance and medical care, and also basic things like identity documents. For a lot of these children, they need the signatures of both of their biological parents on a document in order to receive a um, passport or identity document from their country of origin. 
if one of those parents aren't in the young person's life, they can't actually get ID from their country of origin. And I mean, think about how crucial having an identity document is to our lives here in the United States. So um, my opinion is that attorneys often rush because those documents are really important for the child to be able to live as a young person here in the United States, to be able to have clarity about who can help the young person make really important decisions in his or her life, and um, clarity in terms of um, all those things, including obtaining medical care, obtaining a school enrollment, and also for sure identification. Sure. And um, touching that on uh, what you brought up previously about the uh, SIJS backlog. Yeah. Uh, could you briefly explain that backlog? And uh, I know I've heard a lot of speculation about the length of that, and uh, I think it would be helpful to hear your take on it. Sure, of course. So the, the backlog started um, really in about May of 2016. And why it became a backlog is because the young people who are adjusting status are getting their, their green cards through special immigrant juvenile status are subject to quotas in the visa bulletin. So the visa bulletin is put out by the U.S. State Department, and it controls how many applicants in a particular category from a particular country are allotted um, a visa in a certain for, to apply for a certain status. So young people in special immigrant juvenile status are actually in the employment-based four category. It's called EB4 on the visa bulletin. And what happened is that there are certain numbers of visas in certain categories available for people from certain countries. So when there are a lot of people from the same countries applying for the same type of benefit, there creates a backlog in this visa bulletin um, system. So in the special immigrant category, it's not just special immigrant juveniles. There are other special immigrants as well, other people who fit into that category. But there are about 9,940 total special immigrant visas that are allocated uh, annually by Congress within um, our visa bulletin. And of those, about 7% of 9,940 equals about 695. So per country, there are 695 special immigrant juveniles per country. So that would mean about 695 for a country like El Salvador, again for Guatemala, again for Honduras. So this isn't a problem for people coming from other countries, but it becomes a problem when the majority of the applicants are from the same three countries. So this backlog, there's a bit of confusion as to how how long it is, and uh, people are wondering, you know, how long would these cases be kicked down the line, and how sure. would uh, how long would clients have to wait? Uh, sure. So basically, I know the arrival of UAC of uh, unaccompanied children into the United States hasn't really has fluctuated a bit, but has still remained pretty strong over the past couple of years, at least since uh, 2014 when it got a lot of attention. Uh, if the pace of UAC arrivals doesn't slow down, could we find ourselves in a situation where the backlog will just keep getting longer and it will become kind of less uh, a less realistic option, especially for these kids from Central America? Yes, I think the backlog could for sure keep getting longer. Uh, it does not appear that there's going to be additional um, visas allocated really in any uh, immigration category right now. So unless that changes, um, if the same, if increasing applicants are applying in the same categories, 
for sure, then that backlog would would increase. The interesting part is that there's backlogs in so many areas in our immigration system um, that this isn't anything new in in immigration land um, for advocates. Sadly, we're used to having our clients um, unfortunately have to wait sometimes for years in order to receive an immigration benefit to which they um, might be eligible. I see. And uh, so back to this uh, idea of abandonment, abuse, or ne neglect. I know uh, many UACs arriving in the U.S. are trying to reunite with a parent or a family member or a distant family member who already lives here. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess uh, for advocates, is it sometimes difficult to label someone as uh, being abandoned, abused, or neglected, especially if they're trying to reunite with a family member? Sure, I think that's a great question. I think it really depends on the individual circumstances of that young person's life, where not everybody is eligible for special immigrant juvenile status, for sure. Uh, but there are definitely young people who have been abandoned um, and are reuniting with a parent, for sure, here in the United States, but have been abandoned by the other parent and continue to be abandoned by the other parent as well, or sadly abused or neglected. Um, some element of that as well. In terms of young people resisting being labeled, sure, I think it's very difficult for anyone to speak badly of their parents, no matter how horrible their parents treated them, is something that we as advocates working with children, especially children from the cultures that we deal with, have seen. Um, so what we do is, is talk to the young people about what the what the standard is under the law of a particular place, and then talk about how either the care that their parents provided either fit that, that uh, standard or did not fit that standard, where we explain to the young person that we're not trying to judge their parents and their parenting style and what happened, but we're trying to see um, if what went on, if what happened back in the home country actually fits these definitions of abuse, abandonment, neglect. Sure. And uh, I guess my next question is this, does this often pose a, a dilemma for advocates like who are trying to represent UACs? Uh, maybe they see uh, special immigrant juvenile status as a kind of more fast track approach or an easier approach for their clients, but uh, it doesn't always fit with their kind of life experiences. Sure. I think uh, for a lot of advocates, perhaps saw it as a fast-track approach, but now it is not necessarily any faster than an asylum sure. case. Uh, for me, in terms of as an advocate, and I also teach, what I try to, to teach and what I try to help um, other lawyers to learn is that um, that all other um, asides being equal, meaning that the client is eligible for both special immigrant juvenile status and asylum, it's actually the client's choice in terms of what form of legal relief to pursue or if resources are there to go for both. And there's a lot of other factors that aren't necessarily legal that go into um, which which route to take. For example, the idea of trauma, which is so um so present with the young people that we serve, where perhaps a case in family court might be less traumatic for that young person than testifying and retestifying to the horrors that they experienced before the asylum office, and then if that case is referred to immigration court, to immigration court. Another is access sure. to public benefits as well, 
where that's very, very important and the um, benefits that a young person who was granted asylum might be eligible for are so much more robust as opposed to through special immigrant juvenile status, that that should also be part of the attorney's counseling um, for, for the young person as well. I see, and I think that takes us into our uh, my next question, the next section of the podcast. Uh, so now, now that we have addressed some of the pros and cons of uh, special immigrant juvenile status, we should probably do the same for asylum. Sure. And uh, so why, in your opinion, do some advocates see asylum as a less appealing option for UAC clients? Sure. I think they see it as less appealing, perhaps sometimes because there's a lot of work involved in the asylum case. Um, and also the idea for a lot of the advocates are are new to immigration law and asylum might be a bit daunting to them as well. So I think that's um, those are some reasons why perhaps asylum might be a little um, less palatable. But in terms of how we try to mentor our pro bono attorneys and work with our law students and other lawyers is the idea that children's cases um, in our asylum law system, while held to the same standard, they are um, adjudicated a bit differently. I see. And um, how long does a child asylum case usually take from beginning to resolution? Sure. So that's a that's a great question and one I wish I could answer with a specific number, but it changes all the time. With the children that we work with, they're in removal proceedings, which are effectively deportation proceedings at the immigration court. Because they have received that designation of being a UAC or an unaccompanied child, they're able to have their asylum case heard at the asylum office, um, which is part of USCIS, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services as opposed to a adversarial proceeding in immigration court in the first instance. So uh, typically, we would say about six months of preparation for an asylum case, but that really depends on how quickly the attorney or the advocate can build rapport with the child, uh, if a mental health or physical evaluation is needed, if expert testimony is needed, if documents are, if one needs to obtain documents from the home country, all of those factors go into place. And then when we talk about the asylum office, where these children's cases are going to be heard, even though they're in removal proceedings, there is there are lengthy delays in the asylum office um, procedure. The children are, are lucky to a certain extent because their cases go to the front of the line. However, because of increased arrivals, asylum officers are, are detailed to the border. Um, so there are a lot less asylum officers able to, to work on these cases at the asylum offices. Instead, the asylum officers are hearing credible and reasonable fear interviews from adults detained um, at the border. So we have a lack of resources quite frankly, which um, leads to some waiting right now um, at both of the asylum offices here that we work with in the New York area. Sure. And I know you mentioned that um, these unaccompanied children are usually in removal proceedings. Yeah. And I wanted, I was curious about um, the so-called rocket dockets that the, sure. in 2014, the administration as kind of a response to this crisis uh, set up these rocket dockets specifically for unaccompanied children and uh, adults with children. Yeah. And uh, so I was kind of curious as to whether that kind of, does that add pressure to the uh, the advocate as to, to choose a specific path or, yeah, or I think what has your experience been? 
Sure, my experience is that um, it depends, but typically there is pressure to file something, and that something would be a petition for relief, either to start a petition for guardianship custody or a type of um, state court procedure as the prerequisite for a special immigrant juvenile case or to file an asylum case. And um, I appreciate that the court wants to move these cases along, but the um, other side is that it does take time to build rapport with a young person because, quite frankly, a lot of these kids have been through a lot, a lot of trauma. And in order to um, be able to testify and to be able to talk about what they've been through, sometimes it does take time. So the, the courts um, that we work with here are very generous in granting continuances and allowing advocates the time they need um, to a certain extent to, to make sure that the, their young clients are able to present you know, the best case possible. In other areas of the country, that might not be the case. I think in the, in the last response, you mentioned that uh, child asylum place, cases are uh, held to the same standard but are adjudicated differently. And I was kind of uh, wondering what that, uh, I mean, I've read a lot about this, but I wasn't able to really comprehend exactly what it meant especially in, in terms of the this uh, the liberal benefit of the doubt as it's put and you know how that affects the uh, the case in practice sure so uh, children still have to meet the same definition of asylum that that I articulated earlier right as adults they have to prove that they meet the definition of a, of a refugee which is what um, what the, the whole idea of fear and the whole meeting the definition of asylum is. They also have to prove that they're not statutorily barred from asylum and that they merit um, a grant of asylum in the adjudicator's discretion. Where they um, are their cases are, are more fortunate is that they're able to have what we call two bites at the apple, where they are able to have their case heard at the asylum office. And then if the case is granted, super, then that's the end of the road in terms of um, being granted immigration relief. But if their case is not successful at the asylum office, then the case will be referred to immigration court. So the child would have a chance to review de novo, which means you know, to begin again the young person's case in immigration court. So at the asylum office, the asylum office actually has guidelines um, recognizing that children may be unable to express subjective fear um, in the same way that adults can. And so allowing objective evidence to establish the fear that the young person is, is trying to express. Um, also recognizing the different developmental levels of children and how those developmental levels can be affected by trauma as well. Um, recognizing that harm of child's caretaker or family member on account of one of the protected grounds like race, um, religion, membership in a particular social group, nationality, that that could also be persecution of the child if the child is dependent on that person for care. Um, so that the harm that the child fears um, or that the child actually has suffered, it could be relatively less than that of an adult but the child still could qualify for asylum. What we're talking about here is the idea of this persecution and this harm must be looked at through the eyes of the child who suffered it. I see. And another thing that I was curious about uh, regarding asylum was most of the children, the UACs arriving from Central America are escaping kind of gang recruitment or gang violence in their home countries. So my question was, does a successful UAC asylum case need to show that a uh, the client somehow stood up to a gang in some political way, and how successful have those arguments been? Okay, 
So uh, some cases do involve gang recruitment. Um, some cases don't. I, quite frankly and quite sadly, a lot of the cases of the young people that we meet involve some sort of family violence or domestic violence. Uh, we do see young people who are also persecuted on account of their um, their race, which for the kids from Central America is often their indigenous background. And we do see young people who are persecuted on account of their religion as well. Uh, being too religious in an area where um, the gangs are in control and that they are challenging uh, the roles of society, right, because of their religion. So to go back to your question in terms of more uh, gang-based cases, the idea that children can hold a political opinion is something that is um, a bit hard for everybody to 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 come to grips with, but is actually something that's that we see a lot, where the gangs have become, quite frankly, the de facto government here in the countries that we're talking about, that the governments are broken and that the gangs are acting as state actors, and that the children saying that they don't want to be part of the gang, uh, the girls saying that they refuse to become the gang members' girlfriends, that can actually be a political opinion. Uh, we have children who are targeted because of their parents' political opinions, so the idea that that's imputed or actual, uh, but the idea of political opinion can be broadly defined uh, for for as you were saying in terms of asylum as coming from political you know background asylum law, law comes back from after world war ii right so it comes back from about 19 the 1950s and then actually was codified in our law domestically in the united states in 1980 with the refugee convention and it's changed a lot since then in terms of who can be the bad guys right who are those state actors and our asylum law does recognize the private actor as um, a persecutor if the government of that country is unable or unwilling to control him or her. So in cases of domestic or intimate partner violence, of family violence, when the governments of the country cannot control that persecutor, when there is um, the abuser, when there is no, when there are no resources for survivors of domestic violence, when there are no child abuse centers, when the um, the police look the other way and say that that's a family problem and that we don't get involved with cases like that, that turns out to be an asylum case for the young person as well. So to to just to, to summarize, there's a lot of different ways in which the children from these countries actually can qualify under the law as it stands now for asylum in the United States. I see. And uh, so I have read about... Uh some circuit courts around the country judging asylum cases more uh, more stringently than others. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? What have you experienced? Is uh, Are the courts in certain parts of the countries uh, more strict or more lenient as far as child asylum cases go? Yeah, in terms of um, our, our immigration court system and how asylum cases in general are adjudicated, uh, there's the idea that um, this whole system of what we call refugee roulette, right, where it depends on who your adjudicator is and who your judge uh, is as much as it does what are the facts of your case. And that's the sad reality of the system that we have in place. And a lot of scholars have done research and published all kinds of studies about that. So that we have, quite frankly, as fact um, at present. To my knowledge, there's 
there have not been formal studies specifically on kids' claims in terms of how those are judged and how those are adjudicated. To be frank, there are not a lot of published decisions on um, young people's asylum claims at all, whereas if the case is, is granted at the asylum office, that opinion is never published. It's only cases that would be in immigration court, and not all cases are published. Only some cases are published. So you don't actually, you don't actually know. Um, I see. So uh, now I think we should turn to some of the ethical dilemmas that are kind of inevitably part of representing unaccompanied children. So uh, I know we've been talking uh, over the last few minutes about uh, the differences between asylum and SIJS and how uh, the advocate can kind of like see the merits or drawbacks of either option. But ultimately, the decision is up to the client. And uh, my question is, how do you communicate uh, to a child client, the role of your job effectively, especially the fact that uh, that you are their advocate and they ultimately make the decisions. That's a, that's another great question. For a lot of the young people that we work with, and young people in general, they really haven't had a lawyer before, haven't had an attorney before. So it takes quite a few conversations with the young person to identify yourself and what your role is, and um, and sort of help to combat all the assumptions that are there about who attorneys are and what attorneys do. In a lot of cultures, attorneys are just for rich people or attorneys are only for, for adults, right? Or uh, people from, from different ethnic groups that they could never afford an attorney. So to make sure that young person understands that your role is there as an advocate, as an attorney, understands what the idea of confidentiality is, and understands that you you actually work for them. Uh, it takes a little bit, but when it starts to click with the young person, it actually, we find it be very empowering for the child of the idea that this attorney or these attorneys actually, these are, they're on my side, right? They work for me. So in general, it's something that takes um, a couple different conversations with the young person, but it, it does it does work out in that we're able to, um, to to communicate our role to the young person and work as a team. Sure, I think that wraps up most of the substantive questions that I have. But uh, before we wrap things up, uh, are there any places where listeners can learn more about uh, the Safe Passage Project or related efforts to support UACs in New York? Of course. So at Safe Passage Project, we have a website, which is www.safepassageproject.org. And we have a lot of information about our organization, also uh, resources. Uh, we have a lot of resources online uh, explaining special immigrant juvenile status, asylum, also you and teen non-immigrant status, and other forms of immigration relief for which young people and people in general might be eligible for, as well as training videos and, and items like that. And there's also a lot of other great organizations. Um, here in New York, we have KIND, The Door, Catholic Charities, Community Services, CALA, which stands for Central American Legal Assistance, Human Rights First, the Legal Aid Society, are all other resources and organizations um, here in, in New York City. And then throughout the country, we have the American Immigration Lawyers Association. We have Clinic. We um, have a lot of great resources as well through the American Bar Association in order to find um, more help in working with young people. Great. Well, I think that concludes our discussion on the uh, merits and drawbacks of pursuing asylum and special immigrant juvenile status for UAC clients. I want to thank uh, Claire again for volunteering her time and expertise to help explain this complicated issue and all the listeners for tuning in. 
I encourage everyone hoping to learn more about political asylum or SIJS and representing immigrant children in general to visit uh, the Unaccompanied Children Resource Center at uacresources.org. This site, developed by the Immigration Advocates Network in partnership with the American Bar Association, provides free legal resources for unaccompanied children and attorneys who want to help. Thank you all for listening.